right, let's get into Bible study. I'm going to move this out of the way. We're in 2 Kings chapter 13. And uh, I hope to thoroughly confuse you with more names from Israel's kings tonight. Uh, that's what part of the plan tonight. <laughs> the, <laughs> no, uh, so you're going to find that uh, some of the kings, they kind of change names over or they'll name somebody after a previous king or, or a similar name. And oftentimes there's kings with similar names ruling at the same time in Judah or Israel. Before we start reading, let's just uh, recap a little bit. We left off last week with the death of Joash, and Joash was uh, also called Jehoash. Um, and he, uh, I'm sorry, Jehoash, well, he is called Joash. It, this is one of those times where they're similar. Uh, so we have Joash, the king of Israel, and we have Jeho- Je- Jehoash, the king of Judah. Well, the king of Judah did a lot of temple repairs. He raised up things for the temple, but he moved towards idolatry. He was assassinated by his servants, and that's pretty much what you need to remember going into this week. Let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get into the Word of God. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for this time together. We pray your blessing uh, on, our, on this study, Lord. We ask for you to teach us. Holy Spirit, we're so grateful that you've given us your Word that uh, we might... Uh, uh, be equipped for life and godliness. And Lord, we just pray that uh, we would be truly servants in your kingdom, be mindful of our place in your kingdom. And uh, Lord, that we might pray often. Lord, that we might seek your face and that we might be agents of change in a, change in a lighthouse to an unbelieving world, that they might know you as well. So bless this time in your word, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. So we're starting out chapter 13, verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah. Uh, So remember, Joash, we saw him die last week, but we're moving back over to Israel. So in the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, the king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, became king over Israel in Samaria. And reigned 17 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and followed the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who had made Israel sin. He did not depart from them. Now, I just want to say this one more time. If you're tired of hearing the kings of Israel, he did evil in the sight of the Lord, just know this. There's not a single king of Israel that is good. Each and every one of them. The one that was closest to doing good was Jehu, the one who drove his chariot furiously. Uh, but remember, he continued in the false worship of God, uh, just like Jeroboam, the first king of Israel. We're going to see with the kings of Judah that some are good. In fact, uh, by the time we end tonight, we're going to hear about the birth of probably the best king of Judah. But, but before we get there, you'll see some kings are good and some kings are bad, and, and that's kind of the way that goes. But kings of Israel, not one of them does what pleases the Lord, just so you know. So uh, Je- uh, we're, we're picking up with Jehoahaz. Verse 3, um, then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Israel, and he delivered them into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, all their days. So Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him. For he saw the oppression of Israel, because the king of Syria oppressed them. 
Then the Lord gave Israel a deliverer so that they escaped from under the hand of the Syrians. And the children of Israel dwelt in the tents as before. Now I'm going to stop there for a moment. As we hear about the anger of the Lord being aroused against Israel, we see that he allowed, the Lord actually allows Syria to come in and destroy and take from Israel. Now, we've seen in the past that Judah, God supernaturally protected Judah and the kingdom of Judah because their hearts were t- turned and bent toward God. Whereas with Israel, we see that over and over again, God will allow war or he'll allow them to be harassed because of their wickedness. But we see Jehoah has this unbeliever. Well, maybe he's a believer in the Lord God, but he, he engages in the false worship of God. He's certainly not walking to please God, I'll tell you that much. And, and we'll see some other things. But he sees the situation and he pleads to the Lord. Now, I want to say this. For the Christian, for the one who walks in the Lord, uh, we know that God has promised to us some victory through prayer. When we pray in the Lord's will and in his name, God promises, promises the answer of that for the, for as we align ourselves with the will of God. We, we know that from the New Testament. But there is no obligation to an unbeliever. Now, we don't want to say that God can't hear an unbeliever's prayer because certainly he can. We've seen it over and over throughout Scripture where an unbeliever will cry out to God or even, even uh, we, we know that people, unbelievers all the time will cry out to God and even move to God and, and pray. And so certainly God can hear the prayer of an unbeliever but he may not heed the prayer of an unbeliever. Well, this time Jehoahaz pleaded with the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel. Notice that the oppression of Israel was one of the key aspects of this. God's people being oppressed, even though there's a wicked king, God is going to hear that prayer. So God sends them a deliverer. Now, one of the things I like about this is we have no idea who this is. It's just a totally anonymous deliverer that God raises up. It totally reminds you of the book of Judges where we see that uh, Israel sins. Then they go into captivity or oppression. God raises up a judge, a deliverer for Israel. Uh, or Sorry, Israel repents. God raises up a judge uh, or deliverer and rescues Israel and then they follow God for a short amount of time, and then they go back to their sin. Well, um, this is uh, this unnamed anonymous deliverer, and, uh, and he, uh, God allows this man or this person, who we don't know who it is, whether it's man or woman, uh, could have been like J.L. or Deborah, we don't know. But um, God raises up a deliverer, so they escaped from the hand of Assyrians. Now look at what the result is. Israel dwelt in their tents as before, but nevertheless, they did not depart from their sins of the house of Jeroboam, who made Israel sin, but walked in them. And the wooden image also remained in Samaria, for he left of he left, uh, sorry, verse seven. For he left of the army of Jehoaz only fifty horsemen, ten chariots, and ten thousand foot soldiers. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like the dust and thresh at threshing. Now, this is one of the problems here with Israel. 
where in the book of Judges, the people of Israel would repent and turn back to the Lord, what we see is we, don't, we, we saw a pleading to the Lord and asking for deliverance. God delivered, but what happens? Well, they don't really repent of their sin. They, they, they don't really turn back to the Lord. They, they continue on in their sin, and the Bible tells us that they continue on in the false form of worship. Remember, Israel, Jeroboam's sin was that he didn't want to go to the temple and, do wor- and, and worship there. He was afraid that he was going to lose his people going down to Judah and worshiping in the temple. Or I should say going up to Jerusalem, but, uh, but going south to, to Ju- the land of Judah to Jerusalem. And, uh, and Jeroboam didn't want to lose people, so he built a high place and said, worship here, worship the Lord God here. And they built golden calves uh, to, to worship the Lord God, it seems from the text. And uh, this is the false form of worship. And I think this is important because there is a popular trend in the United States, and actually I would say it's even even contagious in other places of the world as well, but just that as long as you pray, uh, as long as you believe in something, it's all good, we're all getting to the same place. And nothing could be further from the truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. So certainly for at least Jesus' concern, he doesn't believe all ways lead to everywhere. Jesus sets himself apart that way. And in fact, here we see that God is absolutely not blessing Israel because of their false form of worship. God cares about these things. Now, thankfully, we live under this new covenant where we're not confined to sacrificing animals uh, because Jesus has paid the price once for all. He was sacrificed for us. We don't have to go to the temple in Jerusalem and worship that way. But until Jesus came, that was the only way they could worship. It was the only way they could have fellowship with God, that they could have atonement for their sins. That was the way the people of Israel were forgiven. This morning I mentioned in in the book of Acts, uh, Paul talks about how the people of Israel served God night and day for the hope of Israel, the Messiah who would fulfill these things. Well, this was the, that was the only way to worship God. And Jesus said that true worshipers of God worship in truth and spirit. So there is a right way to worship God. And that way is for us today is through the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot worship God any other way. It's just through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, is it in a particular church Fellowship? No, it's through Jesus Christ. It's, is, it in a, is it a particular way of giving funds? No, it's just worshiping through Jesus Christ and not, not adding in idolatry or other religions into it. So this is kind of getting rid of the Baha'i faith. It's getting rid of Unitarianism, Zoroastrianism. It's getting rid of all those other things and saying there is a right way to worship God and it is through the Lord Jesus Christ. So uh, Israel did this sinful thing. So verse 8, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz, all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Again, we don't have that, those books. So Jehoahaz rested with his fathers and they buried with him in Samaria. Then Joash, his son, reigned in his place. Now, this is why I wanted to bring this up. Remember the king of 
Israel, Jehoahash, was also called Joash. So now we have a king of Israel called Joash. And I'm pretty sure these kings were so wicked, they just wanted to confuse us even today with these names. No. (laughs) Anyway, verse 10. (laughs) In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah... Jehoash, see there's a switch, the son of Jehoahaz became king over Israel in Samaria and reigned 16 years. And he did evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, who made Israel sin but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash, all that he did and his might with which he fought against Amaziah, king of Judah, Are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash rested with his fathers. Then Jeroboam sat on the throne, and Joash was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. All right, verse 14. Uh, We're coming here to the death of Elisha. And I want to say this, that any time a godly individual passes, it's it's a very sad time. Uh, you know, you think about when Billy Graham passed, uh, there's no question that Billy Graham had a major influence on America, and we often refer to him as America's pastor. He had an influence on presidents. When Chuck Smith passed, it was, uh, a, it was very sad to see a godly presence pass. And then maybe there's even less known names, but people that you know that just had such a godly presence in your life that at their passing, you were so sad to say goodbye because you felt like the world was uh, a a good godly person was taken home. You're happy for them. They're going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, but you sure do miss that, that godliness. Well, that's where we get to verse 14. Elisha had become sick with the illness of which he would die. Then Joash, the king of Israel, came down to him and wept over his face and said, Oh, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. Jehoash, Joash comes and weeps over the prophet Elijah. Again, Joash is not the most godly man. We already know that. But he knows that upon Elisha's death, uh, notice he refers to Elisha. My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and their horsemen. He's saying that you are the power in Israel. You, you are the representative of God. You are greater than all of our tanks and our air force. And obviously they don't have that, but th- that's the idea here. Of all of our armies, our chariots and our armies, you are that power in Israel because you're the godly presence. And so he comes down to weep. Now, I want to point this out to you. It says, Elisha became sick with the illness which he would die. You know, I think there's, a, there's an idea that passes around that if we're really godly, we are going to just fall asleep and die in our sleep. Or not suffer a sickness and a long death or we're going to have some better death or maybe, maybe the Lord's going to uh, bring the rapture before I die, right? Or, or maybe uh, Elisha should have at least gotten chariots like Elijah, the, the chariot of fire like Elijah. But what we see here is that God uses this sickness uh, to bring Elisha home. And it's a sickness that's somewhat long-term. We don't know how long, but it says he's become sick with the illness of which he would die. 
And, uh, and so Elisha is going to be called home uh, to the Lord's presence, but, uh, and he's suffering with this illness. God uses illnesses to bring even godly people home. I'll never forget working the prayer lines at Calvary Costa Mesa when Chuck passed. Uh, and, uh, you know, Chuck, Chuck said very often uh, that when I pass, I don't want anybody praying that I'd be raised from the dead because I want to be with the Lord. Uh, I don't want any monuments <laughs> erected in my name. I, you know, Chuck, Chuck made a lot of comments about that as he was getting older. Uh, but, uh, I remember working the prayer lines and I'd get these phone calls, you know, welcome, uh, hello, Calvary Chapel prayer line. And they're like, can we pray to raise Pastor Chuck from the dead? And I said, no, <laughs> but uh, you know, we can ask God to comfort you for grieving, you know, but we're not, we're not going to pray. Uh, and, and sometimes we just don't want to let go. Well, God is ready to call Elijah home. So verse 15, and Elijah said to him, Take a bow and some arrows. So he took himself a bow and some arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, put your hand on the bow. So he put his hand on it. And Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. And he said, open the east window. And he opened it. Then Elisha said, shoot. And he shot. And then he said, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. For you must strike the Syrians at Aphek till you have destroyed them. Okay, I'm going to stop there. So Elisha goes through this uh, scenario with Joash, and he has him take the bow, and, he, and Elisha's got his hands on it too, and he, he tells him what to do, and he says, shoot an arrow out, and, and okay, the, behold, look at what he says. He said, this is the deliverance of Israel. That's the important, the arrow of the Lord's deliverance and the arrow of the deliverance from Syria. So now he says, you got to do this to destroy them. So verse 18, then he said, take the arrows. So he took them and he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground. So he struck three times and stopped. And the man of God, that's Elisha, was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck Syria till you had destroyed it. But now you will strike Syria only three times. I know this is kind of a strange moment, but understand what's happening. And by the way, when it says strike the ground in the Hebrew, it's really like uh, shoot arrows at the ground. That's the idea here. It's not just strike the ground like that. So Elijah has set up with Joash uh, this, this, and he does it with him the first time. And now he says, okay, now this is the arrow of the Lord's deliverance from Syria, so now strike the ground with all these arrows. You have these arrows, strike the ground. Now, if Joash would have been paying attention, he would have been shooting, firing arrows. You just keep going until there are none. Then called for more and shot more. But, but as Joash went through this process, he, he shot three and was like, was that, is that good enough? Am I good? Are, are we all good? And we see that Elisha is upset. He's angry. And says that, you know, because you, you didn't even have the follow-through. You didn't have the obedience to keep firing arrows. Now, you're only going to defeat Syria three times. You, if you would have done it five or six times, they would have been totally wiped out. You would have never had to worry about them again. But you only did it three times. Um, I want to say that 
I, I really think that this is a good image for us as believers today. I think it's a wonderful illustration for you and for me. Now, as cool as it would be to just fire arrows out of our window, our neighbors probably wouldn't think that was cool. But certainly we have been given the ability to pray and to intercede on behalf of our people, on behalf of our nation, against our enemies. Well, and obviously we, we're not calling out for the Lord's judgment, but, but we have the ability to pray. And, um, and prayer takes work. It takes effort. It's not just do it once and be finished. It, 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 it take, we're, we're supposed to uh, pray uh, continually before the Lord. 2 Corinthians 10. Uh, 2 Corinthians 10. We're talked, we talk about warfare, and in 2 Corinthians 10, verse 3, it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, I'm going to pause there for a minute. Go back one minute. Just so you know, if you are in this room and you don't know what the word carnal means, it means of the flesh or physical. Our weapons aren't physical swords, and they're not physical bows and arrows, but our weapons are different. They're weapons. uh, They're mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. Now, go go ahead to verse 5. Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ, and being ready to punish all disobedience with your obedience is, is fulfilled, when your obedience is fulfilled. The weapons we fight, we, we wage war with as believers are not the weapons of this world. We, we, have, the, we have the power of the word. And we have the power to pray and intercede on behalf. And, and, of course, we already know that the Holy Spirit actually helps us pray, the Bible tells us. And you and I have this wonderful weapon of war, for, of spiritual warfare, to demolish strongholds. And by the way, when things happen spiritually, often we see physical results. We don't want to just separate the two completely. You want people to come to the place where they're ready to receive the Lord Jesus Christ and have salvation starts with spiritual warfare. It starts with binding the enemy from their lives. It starts with praying that they would understand and submit and surrender. Obviously, they still have their will, but, but you start praying. Go to Luke chapter 18 for a moment. Jesus told this beautiful parable about the weakest person that you can imagine in Israel versus the strongest person you could imagine in Israel. It says in verse 1, Then he spoke a parable to them that men always ought to pray and not to lose heart. So Jesus is telling a story to encourage you to pray and not to give up praying. Don't be a Joash and fire three and say we're good. No, no, keep praying. So it says, there was a certain city, a judge who did not fear God nor regard man. Nor there, it, now there was a widow in the city that she came to him saying, get justice for me from my adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward, he said within himself, though I do not fear God nor regard man, yet because this widow troubles me, I will avenge her, lest by her continual coming she weary me. 
Now, just think for a moment about this widow. This widow has nothing. She has no one to come to her defense. This is truly the weakest person in first century Jewish society going up against the most powerful person, a wicked judge. We still today are afraid of wicked judges because wicked judges can really do a lot of harm to us if we go before a wicked judge, a judge who doesn't fear God nor man. And so this widow is coming before him continually asking for, for justice. Finally, he breaks down and says, okay, fine, I'll, I'll give her justice so she doesn't wear me out, you know. Well, verse 6 says, then the Lord said, hear what the unjust judge said, and shall God not avenge his own elect who cry out day and night to him? Though he bears long with them, I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? You can leave that up for a minute, Bethany. As Jesus is finishing this parable, he compares God, your just God, your Father in heaven, who you can cry out to as Abba, Daddy, for help, and saying, look, if this unjust judge... We'll do this for this weak widow. How much more will your father in heaven, your daddy, come to your rescue? How much more will he avenge you? And look what it calls you, his elect, his chosen people. How much more will he do it? More than that, it says, after Jesus gives this incredible story telling you that, hey, you can not only pray, but you should pray often. And guess what? Your prayer is effective. Look at what the final question is. When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? That, that question is a, a, an incredibly powerful rhetorical question for you to think about. Will I be one of the ones that he finds faith in? continually praying, not like Joash firing three arrows, but someone who's, I'm going to keep firing. I, I'm, I'm going to put maximum effort behind this. I, I'm, I'm going to do my best. And, and that's a challenge for you. I don't want to guilt you into prayer because guilting doesn't do anything for anyone. It just makes us feel guilty and want to hide. But I'll tell you, if I encourage you to pray because you have a Father in heaven who encourages you to pray, he says, ask me. Ask me. I want to hear. I would say pray. I would say pray. You keep praying. Well, going on from there, we see that uh, finishing up with Elisha, it says, uh, oh, it's the wrong chapter. There we go. Verse 20, then Elisha died and they buried him. And the raiding bands of Moab invaded the land in the spring of the year. So it was as they were burying a man that suddenly they spied a band of raiders. And they put the man in the tomb of Elisha. And when the man was let down and touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Yep, that happened. <laughs> This is one of those moments where you're just like, wasn't expecting that, God, but wow. <laughs> you can just imagine Elisha's dead. They buried him in this tomb. And, and 
now in the spring we see that these raiding bands from Moab are coming. And so this other man dies and they're trying to bury the man. But uh, they see this band of raiders. So they're like, oh, we got to do something with his body. We can't just leave it out here. Let's throw him in this tomb over here. Body bumps the bones of Elijah. Now I want to point this out to you. Elisha was gone. (laughs) He was with the Lord. He wasn't there to speak over him. Uh, I think it was really just God reminding Israel about the power, uh, uh, about his power. And so as, as this dead man bumps the bones of Elijah, he's revived and stood on his feet. And you can imagine the guys who threw him into the tomb, what their thoughts, I don't know. And, and, and by the way, this isn't a case for keeping Christian relics or bones or hearts of, of uh, disciples. Well, supposed hearts of disciples, uh, as some of the uh, Catholic churches have done. I, I believe under St. Peter's Basilica somewhere they have the heart of Peter. Well, uh, if that is really the heart of Peter. But honestly, that doesn't matter at all. Um, this is not trying to encourage that behavior. It's just saying what happened. Um, so verse 22, And Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them and regarded them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and would not yet destroy them or cast them from his presence. Amazing what godly people and their legacy can do for their grandchildren. But just because you are the great, 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 or the legacy people, don't take that for granted that uh, Oh, man, I can take all the blessings from my parents and the blessing of faith from my parents and just go on and act like it was no big deal. No, um, and so God is just showing compassion on them and won't destroy them completely. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, died. Then Ben-Hadad, his son, reigned in his place. And Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, recaptured from the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities which he had taken out of the hand of Jehoahaz, his father, by war. Three times Joash defeated him and recaptured the cities of Israel. In the second year, verse, chapter 14, verse 1, of Joash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel, Amaziah, the son of Joash, five years old when he became king, and he reigned 29 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Jehoadam of Jerusalem. So this is, now we move back over to Judah, and this is the son of Jehoash, uh, who was assassinated. Okay, that's, that's what I want to make sure we remind you of. Okay, so, uh, and he did what was right, verse 3, in the sight of the Lord, yet not like his father David. He did everything as father Joash had done. However, the high places were not taken away, and the people still sacrificed and burned incense on the high places. So they were at the very least uh, engaging in the false form of worship of God. Joash did not uh, get rid of those high places. Uh, Now it happened as soon as the kingdom was established in his hand that he executed his servants who had murdered his father, the king. But the children of the murderers did not execute, uh, he did not execute according to what is written in the book of the law of Moses, in which the Lord commanded, saying, fathers shall not be put to death for their children, nor shall children be put to death for their fathers, but a person shall be put to death for his own sin." So uh, Joash uh, brings, I'm sorry, Amaziah brings um, some justice to the assassins of his father, and, uh, but he doesn't take it out on their children. 
So, verse 7, he killed 10,000 Edomites in the Valley of Salt and took Selah by war and called its name Jachtil to this day. Now, there's a story here, and it's actually found in Chronicles. So we're going to jump over to Chronicles real fast. Chronicles 25, and uh, we're going to read a little bit more about Amaziah here. So, moreover... Amaziah gathered Judah together and set over them captains of thousands and captains of hundreds according to their father's houses throughout all Judah and Benjamin. And he numbered them from 20 years old and above and found them to be 300,000 choice men able to go to war who could handle spear and shield. He also hired 100,000 mighty men of valor from Israel for 100 talents of silver. So let me explain what this is. He went and got mercenaries, okay? He hired them from Israel. These aren't men from Judah. Hired 100,000 of them from Israel. That's important. All right. Going on from there. But a man of God, that's a prophet, came to him saying, O king, do not let the army of Israel go with you. For the Lord is not with Israel, not with any of the children of Ephraim. But if you go, be gone. Be strong in battle. Even so, God shall make you fall before the enemy, for God has power to help and to overthrow. Then Amaziah said to the man of God, But what shall we do about the hundred talents which have I have given to the troops of Israel? And the man of God answered, The Lord is able to give you much more than this. Then So Amaziah discharged the troops that had come to him from Ephraim to go back home. Therefore, their anger was greatly aroused against Judah, and they returned home in great anger. Then Amaziah strengthened himself, and leading his people, he went to the Valley of Salt and killed 10,000 of the people of Seir. Now, uh, let me back up for a minute. Uh, so the Valley of Salt, this is the uh, southern portion of the Dead Sea. Some people think that this place of battle was actually where modern-day Petra is. We're not sure f- for sure, but uh, it's kind of hard to know for sure where some of these Old Testament sites are. But uh, there's a lot of people that think that this was actually where modern-day Petra was, where um, Amaziah went and, f- and fought. All right, verse 12. So... Also, the children of Judah took captive 10,000 alive, brought them to the top of the rock, and cast them down from the top of the rock so that they all were dashed in pieces. You know, it's, yeah. Verse 13, but as for the soldiers of the army which Amaziah had discharged, look at what they did. These are the men of Israel. So that they would not go with him to battle, they raided the cities of Judah from Samaria to Bethoron, killed 3,000 uh, 3,000 in them, and took much spoil. So they're upset. They came to be mercenaries for Judah. Judah said, we'll hire you for 100 talents of silver. And now they're told they're just discharged. But even though Amaziah still paid them, my guess is they were probably looking to make some more money off raiding and battling and doing all that sort of stuff. So because of that, he uh, they go and they burn uh, they burned down the towns of Judah and Samaria, all to Beth Horon, and they, they basically raid the villages back up to Israel. Uh, now, uh, now it was, so after, uh, wait, I'm sorry. Oh, yeah, okay. So, uh, verse 14, now it was so, after Amaziah came from the slaughter of the Edomites, that he brought, look at what he brought, the gods of the people of Seir, set them up to be his gods. And bowed down before them and burned incense to them. Therefore the anger anger of the Lord was aroused against Amaziah. 
And they sent him a prophet who said to him, why have you sought the gods of the people which could not rescue their own people from your hand? Is that a logical question? It's like saying, hey, take this lucky rabbit's foot. Was it lucky for the rabbit? Really? I don't think so. So, so Amaziah, uh, he brings the gods back to Judah. and These gods of these people he's just defeated and starts worshiping them. And the prophet says, why would you do this? These are the people that were defeated. And, and your God said, send away those, those mercenaries. And I'll just, I have the power to deliver, overthrow. But Amaziah says, no, this is a really good idea. We should do this. Friends, this is the perfect picture of sin. The sin does not make sense. And, and you can be engaged in a sinful attitude or sinful actions. And people who love you and who are around you say, this doesn't make sense. Why are you doing this? Don't you know? And they'll share scripture with you. They'll intercede on your behalf. They'll speak to you, but you'll say, no, this is a great idea to your own destruction. This is a really perfect picture of sin because God has just delivered Amaziah and he's like, no, I, I gotta worship these false gods. So then the, uh, so it was that he talked with him and the king said to him, have we made you the king's counselor? Basically, you're not my counselor. You're some prophet. <laughs> Cease. Why should you be killed? Basically, I'll kill you if you keep going. Then the prophet ceased and said, I know that God has determined to destroy you because you have done this and have not heeded my advice. All right, you can go back over to uh, Kings 14. And we're going to finish up here with Amaziah. Um, all right, so now, verse 8 in uh, chapter 14, then Amaziah sent messengers to jo- Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, king of Israel. Now, so he sends a message to the king of Israel. Look at what he says. Come, let us face one another in battle. Man, I'm a strong general and leader. I just defeated uh, the, the, the ar- army of the Edomites, ten, and, and I'm now ready to, to come against you. Now, and Jehoahash, king of Israel, sent to Amaziah, king of Judah, saying, the thistle that was in Lebanon sent to the cedar that was in Lebanon, saying, give your daughter to my son as wife. And the wild beast that was in Lebanon passed by and trampled the thistle. You have indeed defeated Edom, and your heart has lifted you up. Glory in that, and stay at home. For why should you meddle with the trouble so that you fall, you and Judah with you? Basically, the king of Israel is saying, I'm a cedar. You're a thistle. I'm a wild beast. You're a thistle. You're getting crushed. If you come against me, don't do it. Stay out of this battle. And, uh, but Amaziah would not heed. Verse 11, therefore Jehoash, king of Israel, went out. So Amaziah, king of Judah, faced one another at Beth Shemesh, which belongs to Judah. And Judah was defeated by Israel, and every man fled to his tent. Then Jehoash, king of Israel, captured Amaziah, king of Judah, the son of Jehoash, the son of Ahaziah, at Beth Shemesh. And he went to Jerusalem, broke down the wall of Jerusalem from the gate of Ephraim to the corner gate, 400 cubits. 
And he took all the gold and silver, all the articles that were found in the house of the Lord, that's the temple, and in the treasury of the king's house and hostages and returned to Samaria. Now remember, it was Amaziah's father who had done this restoration of the temple and had raised a collection and gotten new, uh, new uh, utensils and things for the temple. And so now in this moment of his pride... And because he wouldn't forsake those gods that he had brought back from Edom, and he wouldn't listen to the prophet of God, and he wouldn't listen to the warning from the king of Israel, he's totally and utterly defeated. Verse 15, now the rest of the acts of Jehoahash, which he did, his might, and how he fought with Amaziah, king of Judah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? So Jehoash rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria with the kings of Israel. Then Jeroboam, his son, reigned in his place. Amaziah, the son of Joash, king of Judah, lived 15 years after the death of Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, king of Israel. Now the rest of the acts of Amaziah, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And they formed a conspiracy against him in Jerusalem. Does this sound familiar? Anybody? All right, and he fled to Lachish, but they sent after him to Lachish and killed him there, just like his dad. Then they brought him on horses, and he was buried at Jerusalem with his fathers in the city of David. And all the people of Judah took Azariah, who was 16 years old, and made him king instead of his father Amaziah. He built Elath and restored it to Judah after the king rested with his fathers. Now, Amaziah ends up dying the same way his father did. And his demise was the same thing his father did. Uh, we know that his father welcomed false gods and false worship of God and uh, would not listen. And as a result, uh, people conspire and they assassinated his dad. Now the very same death happens to him. One victory. He had one victory that made him so prideful and boastful that he no longer needed the Lord God. And he wouldn't even heed the warning. And I do want to say this. Uh, I think we can learn at least one thing from Amaziah going up against the king of Israel, Jehoash. You don't need to pick fights with people. I know this is practical, and maybe most of you probably don't ever go around picking fights. But some people love to provoke fights. And I'm just telling you right now, there, it is not a uh, fruit of the Spirit to be a brawler, but it is to be a peacemaker and to show love and kindness. And, you know, you shouldn't be a busybody getting in everybody else's business thinking, oh, look how the God has blessed me. I'll have victory here. Uh, I just want to encourage you in that. Stay out of people's business. Uh, don't provoke people to fighting. Uh, we can certainly learn that from Amaziah. Now, this chapter ends, it's kind of like, how are we going to end on that? Well, I'll tell you right now. Azariah, we're, we're going to stop there for tonight with, with these verses, but look at who's born to Judah. Azariah, he's going to replace Amaziah. Now, you know him as, uh, we, we're reading him here as Azariah, but he has another name that we learn in Scripture, and it's Uzziah. Uzziah is probably the greatest king in Israel or at least one of the greatest, well, not the greatest king of David, obviously. But Uzziah is an incredibly godly king. And um, if you remember in Isaiah, 
uh, Isaiah says, in the year of the death of King Uzziah, I saw the Lord seated on the throne. And uh, so we're going to see that this wonderful king, we'll learn more about him, but I want to say that, that when Uzziah dies, people are kind of lost. They feel like, how can we go on without this wonderful king? And, and that's when Isaiah gets this vision of the Lord seated on the throne. So, so there's, there's always hope in God's story. We're going to see Uzziah take over going forward, and we'll, we'll, we'll learn a lot about Uzziah. All right, that ends it for tonight. Let's go ahead and pray, and we will close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for your word, and Lord, we want to be a fellowship that is engaged in spiritual warfare. Lord, we don't want to be apathetic. We don't want to be complacent. Lord, we don't want to ignore the tools that you've given to us, but we know that any warrior who takes up sword or spear needs to practice, needs to train, needs to learn how to use them. And so, Lord, let us learn how to use the weapons of spiritual warfare. God, help this congregation, your people, be precise with your word. Lord, we know that through your Holy Spirit, you give us words to speak, but we need to learn your word. Lord, let us be precise with our prayers and faithful. God, we do want to be people of faith when you come. And Lord, we want to say yes, in the fellowship of Calvary Chapel Old Town, you will find faith among these people. Lord, we thank you for these gifts of warfare. And Lord, we know that our world, our community, our, our country has people who are lost, people who are hurting. And Lord, they need you to become king of their lives. So Lord, help us uh, fulfill this role in the battle for your kingdom. We thank you and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in John, John writes in First John, Now this is the confidence that we have in him. If we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us, whatever we ask, we know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. God has equipped you with great power and authority. Maybe some of you, God will raise up to be a deliverer. You keep praying. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he cause his face to shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.